Brought to you by Feitner Productions. From the Unreasonable Doubt Studios, in association with Feitner Productions, this is Laying Down the Law with your host, Billy DeClerc, and co host, Lauren Michaels. Featuring a jury of genius jokesmiths and paneled with the help of Publishers Clearinghouse, auditors from the firm of DCH Lottery Management, and selected by random draw from a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar every Tuesday and Thursday at half past never. Only a madman would bring these people together to construct an entire virtual world of law and order simply to tear it asunder with ruckus laughter. That madman is attorney Billy DeClerc. The result is a podcast blasted to the farthest reaches of the interwebs. That podcast is this one, and it starts right now. Welcome to Laying Down the Law, the law and comedy podcast, hosted by me, the guy who's more fun than a badminton game in Cartagena, Billy DeClerc. And I'm co-host Lauren Michaels, actor, comedian, writer of bicycles, and writer of stories, and designer uh, with five stars on Poshmark. You have five stars on Poshmark? Yeah. That's awesome, Lauren. <laughs> or were we maybe going to introduce a guest? We, we do have a guest who's got five stars on Poshmark, and you're already lying about it. That's so awesome. That's... <laughs> who's got five stars on Poshmark, Lauren? Oh, I'm just kidding. I don't. That's the very talented Pia Smith. Pia, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. You still have five stars, right? I still have five stars and I made a sale just yesterday that I got. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you back, Pia. We've got another returning guest. She's legally trained, but unrestrained. She's a storyteller from Austin, Texas. Let's welcome back Kristen Drenning. Hello. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to have you. And finally, I'd like to introduce a first time guest, my sister from the same mister, Lisa Michaels. (laughs) Now, I, Lauren, I wrote that in the script and I hope it wasn't too presumptuous. It was just a guess. It was the same. Yes. I mean, you know, that, that's accurate. <laughs> so far as we we're able to confirm. Same genes. If you can. Yeah. <laughs> well, is it it's it's Howard, right? It's Howard. Correct. Yes. If Howard Michaels is listening, uh, please feel free to call into our next episode to confirm parentage. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad to have all of you on this show. This is going to be so much fun. Before we get into the law stuff, let's take a minute to promote good people doing good things in good places for you. Here's the story of coronavirus. When the government was clearly unprepared, all of us had heard the You're on mute, you can scream it 
You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. All right, there. Get on out and support those products, services, or entertainment events. Whatever it is we just advertised, you should do it, see it, or buy it. Let's get into it without any further ado. The case of the week. Wood versus Lady Duff Gordon. Mate versus Hopper. This week's cases address a concept that we talked about recently called consideration. To bring our guests and, and new people up to speed, consideration is the basic idea that in a contract, there must be some kind of exchange of value. So the legal term for that exchange of value is consideration. Sometimes the saying is, there must be at least a peppercorn. So if there's not something that's being exchanged, no value, then it's a gift. Some people might say, well, you know, a gift has consideration. You know, if I give you a birthday present in return, I get gratitude. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about consideration, because you can't really sell gratitude on the open market, whereas a peppercorn, you might be able to get a quarter of a cent for it. So. This idea of consideration is something that we learn early on when we're talking about contracts, that in order for there to be a contract that is binding and therefore enforceable and therefore gives lawyers something to sue about, there must be this exchange of value we call consideration. Today's cases are both cases in which there is a question as to whether the consideration was mutual, meaning both sides of the contract are both giving something in exchange. So there has to be consideration on both sides of the contract in order for it to be a binding consideration. So today's topic deals with mutuality of consideration. Our first case is a fashion-oriented case because P is here and she's a designer with five stars on Poshmark, as we know. And um, Pia, do you know anything about somebody named Lucy Lady Duff Gordon? I do not. Is she a current designer or an historical one? Well, she's a survivor of the Titanic. So I'm not sure... Uh, she's current. Ooh, mm -hmm. I'm going to go with historical. Mm -hmm. 1912. She survived the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Wow. Among other things. She then went on to become the star of this very interesting opinion authored by none other than Judge Benjamin N. Cardozo. Wood versus Lucy Lady Duff Gordon involves an early promo deal. It's like what we do now when uh, somebody famous will say uh, Billy Eichner or Lady Gaga is like, you know what I need to get into is shoes. And then, uh, you know, they take a pair of Nine West, they paint it red and they call it the Billy Eichner. And, uh, you know, and then he gets this branding deal. So that's basically what the deal was, is that um, Lucy Lady Duff Gordon was a fashionable, famous woman and a designer because she was so famous, so well-known. The belief was that just putting her name on these fashion products would improve sales by way of her endorsement. She was an influencer. Ah. She was an early influencer. People like that lady survived the Titanic. She wasn't just an influencer. Like she did do the actual design. So who would that be? Uh, it was Kanye. Yeah. Gucci. Gucci. Yeah, or um, or uh, like any big name? Of Kate those? Spade. I don't know. Tom Ford. 
Converse does a lot of these. Betsy kind of Johnson. Betsy Johnson, right. And I pictured her like that, like in her own funky lane. Mm-hmm. Just if she's like, you know, if she and Molly Brown are lesbian lovers, I just picture mm-hmm. that she would have been. <laughs> yeah, we're going to add that yeah. to the historical record right, right now. Exactly. Um, and so the idea of the contract was that the plaintiff, Otis F. Wood, a New York advertising agent, he had clients that were major commercial clients and celebrities. The plaintiff would have the right to exclusively market the endorsed products that Lucy Lady Duff Gordon designed. And they split the profits 50-50. Here's what happened. The exclusive arrangement lasted for one year starting April 1st, 1915. So Wood only needed to account for whatever sales were received and get patents as necessary. By the way, patent, copyright, areas of intellectual property, we won't get too far into that, but you you wouldn't necessarily patent a clothing design. You might patent a shoe because a useful object. A clothing design could be potentially copyrighted. So if it's a pattern or something like that, it could be copyrighted as a fixed work of expression. Um, but you wouldn't patent a, a design of a necessarily of a cloth or fabric unless it had some kind of useful thing or you know if you invented some kind of a new shirt like a dry uh, fit dry fit right or you know was a new kind of corset or whatever so wood's responsibility under the contract was patents and accounting for the money he wasn't required to necessarily market the clothes or do anything specific or meet certain sales quotas Lucy Lady Duff Gordon's design was called the Lucille. Nice. It was haute couture. Um, so she was designing clothes for high society, um, for the stage and the early silent films. Ooh. Okay. So these are some high-end New York mucky mucks making a deal for one year. But the deal is if Wood didn't do anything to market the clothes, there wouldn't be any money, nothing to split. He didn't have some obligation or sales target. Well, Lucy Lady Duff Gordon came up with another idea. And she said, I'm going to do another line of clothing for the masses. And she endorsed products that were being sold by Sears Roebuck. Sullying her name, but okay. So she decided to do what some people do today. And they, you know, they, they switch from, you know, having a haute couture line. They, they say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and put it through at Sears. Like Isaac Mizrahi for Target. Right. Johnson at Nordstrom Rack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, if I knew anything about fashion, I could contribute to this. <laughs> <laughs> and like Mary Kate and Ashley. Oh, I feel like that they're the opposite because the row is like crazy. Oh, yeah, they switch. Yeah. They have been the opposite. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it'd be if they were selling Gucci at Target. I think would be like the, right. <laughs> whatever. Whoa, that's it's not a, a bad idea, actually. It's a, a great idea. This close. Wait, yeah. they, they did don't. collaborate with Adidas, but the shoes were still eight hundred. the adidas collab awesome (laughs) well otis wood would have none of this i'll tell you that and he sued lucy lady duff gordon saying you breached our contract you're supposed to exclusively be selling clothes through me and i get half she defended and said we don't have a contract because no consideration exists The reason she said that no consideration exists is there's no mutual obligation. You see, she was obligated to give him half 
of whatever he made, but he wasn't really obligated to do much of anything. He wasn't obligated to sell any certain amount. He wasn't obligated to undertake efforts to advertise. He didn't have to secure patents if he didn't want to. And if he decided to sell nothing, he still kept his rights and she would get nothing. So her argument was essentially that there's no mutual obligation here. It's a one-way street and I'm free to not honor this contract because it's not a contract. There's no mutuality of consideration. She's right. Yeah, this is very feminist of her, I feel like, because like, isn't right. it too, like a gentleman to be like, I'm just going to sit here and you give me money or whatever. <laughs> That's what surviving the Titanic will do to you. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, Women and children survived a sinking ship. That's right. She's not going to be pushed around by some, you know, uh, New York yeah, advertising she's guy. like the first Wim Hof out there just <laughs> doing her ice baths. Um. <laughs> I love this woman. Yeah. 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 I'm going to name my next pet Lucille. Mm, I like Duff for a name. I don't know. Maybe. Duff maybe is kind of a good name. All yeah. I think of is the Simpsons beer when I think of yeah. Duff. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Duff Gordon then. Yeah. Who knows? Duff Gordon. Yeah. I'm going back to the drawing board on that one. Yeah. Lucy. Well, no. Lady I mean, Duff. Lady, Lady Duff. Lady yeah. Duff. Yeah. Yeah. Ruff McGruff? Chicago, Illinois. Duff McGruff, yeah. That's like the, 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 the for the crime fighting line. <laughs> wow, the expectation that she would put in all of the labor and that would dictate her earnings in the whole event. Yeah, I think I would have said no thanks. Yeah, the, the, the agreement didn't require, it didn't expressly state anywhere what Wood was supposed to do. In terms of like, or in terms of like, like factual history, like how did this like agreement come to be made in the first place? It seems so one-sided. I mean, not that people don't sign terrible, like one-sided contracts every day, but she seems like kind she, of a sophisticated player. She hustled him, I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Just to get the ball rolling. Maybe. Well, I mean, I get, I, I mean, good point, but I'm like, how common was this type of contract? You know what I mean? Was yeah. there a thing people were doing? And if not, if this was the first, you know, maybe she, you know, went into it not thinking he'd be a stupid, lazy, never mind. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, I think it was pretty common at the time. These were kind of common. Um, and it might be that he was like her press agent or something. So they had business elsewhere or something like that. Too. Or maybe, I mean, I hate to take it there, but do you think there were other things going on? You know what? That's always I mean, a story I want to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's impossible to separate this case from uh, gender politics in the early 1900s. Mm, okay. It's a, I think there it is. It is it, if there was a feminism in the law class, this would be a good one to read, which I'm sure there is. The first line of the opinion says, "Defendant styles herself a quote creator of fashions." Oh, I'm getting mad. <laughs> yeah, this is wow, Justice Cardozo really uh, like wow. really respecting the litigant, wow. right? Wow. Her favor helps the sale, and it says that. Uh, manufacturers are glad to pay for a certificate of her approval. The things which she designs, fabrics, parasols, and whatnot, uh -uh. have a new value in the public mind when issued in her name. And then he says, she employed the plaintiff, Wood, to help her turn this vogue into money. To me, that, that 
you know, sitting here in 2022, this sounds like it's suffused with so much. Um, what's the word? Bullshit. Uh huh. Sounds that way to us too. I'm just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Condescension. Yeah. Yeah. Condescension. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is basically uh, Cardoza mansplaining. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so she gave him the exclusive right to put her endorsements on the designs and he was have have the exclusive right to sell her stuff or to license it and she got one half of the profits i personally feel what's informing cardozo is like i don't think he thought she could have done it by herself right basically oh he's totally like oh look honey your little parasols weren't mm-hmm. doing thing until this man came over here and made something of your little interesting idea Right. And to the extent that she's doing anything herself, it's like unseemly, right? Like she's kind of making her sound like like she's like selling her wares out there on the street. You know what I mean? Like in a in a salacious way almost, right? Sounds- yeah, like how dare she? How dare she put her name on things to make them fashionable? Like she's supposedly just because she endorses it. Like rolling his eyes at the idea of branding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. So little did he know. Well, you won't be surprised on how this comes out. Oh, no. So the question is whether there was mutuality of obligation that both sides have consideration when one side was not expressly required by the agreement to do something. So Wood was not required to sell anything, was not required to do anything, just he had the exclusive right, but no obligation. So what's the word we're using? Consideration? Consideration is the exchange of value. There's none because her objective would be to have someone that would be doing that, that would be selling, the, that would be making the effort to sell the product. Mm-hmm. So she's she, right. He's wrong. Mm-hmm. She's bringing the, she's bringing the styles. She's bringing the, the brand recognition. She's bringing the name and all he's doing is selling it and keeping half. Selling it. Maybe. She's Maybe. the one that ended up selling the huge contract to Sears, was it? Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she got a deal with Sears and he sued to, in, to invalidate it. It said she breached the contract. <laughs> well, Benjamin Cardozo being Benjamin Cardozo, always, uh, always siding on the right of things, says that there's an implied promise. So the, the, he had an exclusive privilege and that, involves some assumption of duties. There are other terms of the agreement that point the same way, that he has a certain kind of a business organization that is adapted to the placing of such endorsements as she approved. And the implication is that his business is going to be used in order to market her designs. And so if he didn't give any efforts, she wouldn't get anything. And so therefore there's an implied promise that he's going to do something for her to actually get profits from her designs, even though it's quote, imperfectly expressed, or it's an acceptance of an exclusive agency was an assumption of some duties. He reasoned the law has outgrown its primitive stage of formalism when the precise word was the sovereign talisman 
Oh man. Whenever judges use this kind of line of reasoning, also the opposite version of it, it's terrible. You know that they're doing something that's wildly inappropriate. Basically. Yeah. Well, I think this is a great opportunity to do a little bit of legal philosophy. Kristen, can you expand a little bit on that about the mode of analysis in a legal opinion? Sure. To my understanding, basically the big like sharks versus jets in the legal world is people who are strict text uh, textualists or whatever they want the term that they use for that, which is where you literally, you just, you look very closely at what is written uh, in the law and you do not deviate from that, no matter how it might be interpreted in terms of the mm. spirit of it. Right. And then there's these less formal liberal judges, some people call them activist judges, who are like, let's take a look at what they mean, these people, legislators mean when they crafted this. Let's also leave some room for like modern adaptation of these laws to like current circumstances. And it basically means we can make our own rules, whatever. Right. And there's not really a binary either because we're using words to express ideas. Words are inherently imperfect and they change over time. And so there's all kinds of ways in which we try to make sense of in a contract scenario. How do we understand the words of the contract? How do we understand what the parties meant? When do we put in implied promises, things that are suggested by the contract? And when do we stick to exactly what's in the contract word for word? And Kristen's reaction, I think, is is to the point that Cardozo signals he's going off on his own and he's going to just decide what he thinks this contract means when he starts talking about, well, it's imperfectly expressed and it's assumed that it's inherent in this, that this would be happening. That's the judge bringing her or his own experience to reading the words and trying to make sense of it based mm -hmm. upon common sense. And, and that's when you start wondering, are they really interpreting the contract and how much should we respect the interpretation of someone who's saying, well, I'm just going to say this is what I think it means. I mean, does Cordozo count as like the reasonable judge standard if he's the reasonable man? And that's <laughs> right. <laughs> right. How, how do you know? There are canons of contract interpretation in which you look to things like the reasonable and ordinary meaning of words. So sometimes a judge will take a word that's unclear in a contract and go look at the dictionary definition or look at how it's defined in other cases or in other laws and see how do how can we interpret this word under this circumstance that the parties didn't apparently really foresee or they didn't express it clearly? Another way that judges can look at a contract and interpret is they look at the surrounding circumstances. What was in the parties' minds when they were signing up to this agreement? What we have here really is Cardozo is really saving Wood's butt uh, yeah. because there's a fair reading of this contract that it's really a one-way street. He took advantage of her and her position to put himself in the position where he had this exclusive right, but no obligation. And then when she said, well, you, you're not selling my stuff. You're not doing anything for me. He said, well, I don't have to, but you have to perform through me. You know, a better contract would have required him to do something, right? A clearer contract would have said, well, he's, he's required to make best efforts. And then she would have consideration. She would have something to stand on. She could say, this contract requires you to exercise best efforts. And when I look at this contract, I'm getting a better deal from Sears because they're going to actually market my products where you've done nothing but sit on your thumbs for six months. And I don't need to be held back. You know, time's, time's a waste and I survived the Titanic. I want to sell my stuff. And she's depending on him to sell the stuff and she's given him this right for whatever reason. The original question that sent us off on this exploration was my long pause, which was, um, me going back to read the case again to see if there's anything about the formation of the contract in the case. 
Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any information about the circumstances, but I would hazard a guess that part of this had to do with the fact that he had the connections, he had the money, and he promised he was going to help her sell their stuff. And apparently she didn't end up being happy with what he was doing to do that. So Cardozo is saying that there is consideration, there is mutuality of obligation when there's an implied duty. Only if he took reasonable efforts would he ever get anything out of this. And so he was impliedly obligated to do something to try to sell her products. Query whether that's the right result, but that's the result in this case. And that's the, the takeaway from this case, Wood versus Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon, Court of Appeals of New York, 1917 is that even though the writing itself may be imperfect, the court can go ahead and read into the contract what the parties intended. It can be an implied promise in order to save the contract and make it an effective contract. And by trying to tell what the parties intended, you can then rescue the contract that's been imperfectly created. So she ended up having to share her profits from the Sears deal. The outcome is that she was in breach of the contract by having made the deal oh, with Sears. Oh, man. Oh. I hate that. Of course, they did that to that poor woman. Right. And then she's like, okay. we just didn't want her to be successful. Of course. And the whole thing is like, she knew she didn't need him anymore because it's her name selling it. He's not even trying. Well, I guess like if you're the other side, you might say like only after I like was the one to make this deal with her and I alerted her to the possibility of doing this kind of thing. Did she then take my idea and my like legwork and then like seek somebody else to do it for her for more like favorable terms or whatever? Yeah, I I don't know. Cardozo, he's got his advocates, right? Yeah. Basically, he looks at the contract and he points out a couple of things in the contract in support of his conclusion. He says that the plaintiff promised to give her a monthly accounting for whatever monies he received and that he would take out any patents, copyrights, and trademarks that he thought were necessary to protect the articles. He admits he was not under a duty to try to market it or to get the certificates, but Cardoza says, well, he was required to account for profits. And that promise helps us to figure out what the parties intended. Quote, it helps to enforce the conclusion that the plaintiff had some duties. His promise to pay the defendant one half of the profits and revenues resulting from the exclusive agency and to render accounts monthly was a promise to use reasonable efforts to bring profits and revenues into existence. That's a reach. Okay. These days, if you were to have a contract like this, a term, a reasonable efforts, kind of term would be in the contract. You would, you would, if you were going to give this kind of exclusive, right. And you probably want to put some meat on what reasonable efforts means, devote a certain amount of time, um, spend a certain amount of money. The more specific you could get, the more likely you could save this contract. Cardozo is just throwing this guy a rope and saying, yeah, he, even though it doesn't say reasonable efforts, that's implied, that's suggested, and that's consideration. And remember what I said at the outset, consideration under the law may be so small as a peppercorn, just a little pebble, 
a very, very small amount of consideration will save a contract. Capricorn, yes. You know, while we'll second guess what the contract means, we're not going to second guess that the party's intended to have a contract. That's Wood versus Lady Duff Gordon. We have another case. Woo. Jumping forward 40 years and switching coasts. California, 1958. Matei versus Hopper. The plaintiff sued the defendant for breach of contract. The reason that the plaintiff sued the defendant for breach of contract is because the defendant promised to convey certain real property to the plaintiff after receiving a receipt for a deposit. The plaintiff wanted to buy this piece of property. The defendant promised to sell it. There was a deposit and the defendant changed their mind. So the question here is, what did the plaintiff get? Was there a mutuality of obligation where there was just a deposit? Okay, because the plaintiff did not have to go through with the sale, kind of a one-way contract like Wood versus Lady Duff Gordon. The plaintiff, Matei, was a real estate developer. Matei planned to build a shopping center that was adjacent to this land that was owned by Amelia Hopper. Amelia Hopper rejected all of Matei's offers, saying the price was too low. But eventually, Peter Matei made an offer that she accepted. He was required to deposit $1,000 of a total purchase price of $57,500. They signed a document. The document was called a deposit receipt. Under the terms of this deposit receipt, Matei paid her $1,000 and then he had 120 days to research the title and pay the rest of the purchase price, provided he quote, was able to attain leases satisfactory to the purchaser. Remember, this is a shopping center development and the economics of a shopping center development, it's, it's an iterative process because you don't want to build a shopping center if you have no tenants. So the developer wants to secure the land and the location and then get a Target or a Jack in the Box or a gas station or whatever to commit to leasing for a long period of time. That then makes the development of the shopping center make economic sense. So Matei said, look, I'm going to buy this property if I confirm you have good title, meaning you own the property, you can sell it to me. I'm going to pay the rest of the purchase price if I can obtain leases that are satisfactory to me. So the reason that Matei included this clause was to give him time to go out and shop the property and try and get leases. So 120 days, six months, right? He was supposed to get the land once he paid the rest of the purchase price. So he pays his deposit, $1,000, and he goes out and tries to find leases. Before he pays the rest of the money, Amelia Hopper goes to him and she says, you know what? I don't want to go through with it. I'm not happy with $57,500 anymore. I don't want to sell you the property. All I have is a deposit and I don't have to sell you the property. I mean, but wasn't it she who like made the contract that specified that he got 120 days? She signed that contract. Yeah, Matei said, well, I'm... I have leases. I'm willing to pay the rest of it. And she said, I don't, want to, I don't want to sell it to you. And so he sued for breach of contract to force her to sell the property to him on the terms of the deposit receipt, $57,500. So there was a trial. The judge found in the trial in favor of Hopper, finding that there wasn't a mutuality of obligation. Because remember, Matei didn't have to go through with the deal if he didn't want to. If he couldn't get tenants. Her argument would have been, look, he's tied up my property and he's got no real obligation. He could come back to me at the end of 120 days and say, sorry, I didn't find any leases. You're out of luck. And she would have locked up her property for six months 
had no opportunity to sell it to somebody else while he considered whether he was going to find leases. Similar to Otis Wood, mm. who wasn't really obligated to necessarily go out and find sales opportunities or endorsements or deals for Lucy Lady Duff Gordon. And so Matei appealed and said, this satisfaction clause does not make the promise an illusory, an empty promise. So we talk about promises and we talk about an illusory promise, a promise that you have no obligation to complete, illusory like an illusion. So he said, this lease satisfaction term did not make my promise to buy the property illusory. She could have hypothetically sued me if I didn't go through with it, if I didn't go out and try and find leases or I unreasonably refused leases or whatever. So I had things I had to perform too. So what do you think? Should they reverse if you're the court of appeal and you've read Wood versus Lucy Lady Duff Gordon? You're thinking about that case and you, this case comes before you. What do you reason? What do you rule? I mean, like paying the deposit was basically him paying for those 120 days, right? I mean, that feels like a reasonable mutuality of... of yeah, I feel that way. Yeah. I hate to be on his side. I know, right? I want to be with the lady on this one. The outcome ultimately was that the judgment was reversed and she was forced to sell to him under the terms of the contract. I don't know if there's a postscript okay. that they made a settlement afterward, but the, the outcome here... Favors uh, the man in both cases, but okay, I'm... Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what to say about that, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I hear, I hear that for sure. The, the analysis here has to do with the word satisfactory. Sometimes in legal cases, a lot can turn on one word. The defendant's argument was the word satisfactory gave all the discretion to Matei to decide whether it was satisfactory or not. If he'd found them unsatisfactory, then he could just say no and he wouldn't have to perform the lease. And so if he had no obligation to perform because he could just decide something was satisfactory or not satisfactory because, you know, it's up to him. He just, he's deciding between a Sears and a Kmart and he's like, you know what, Sears, I don't trust those folks. I'm going to go with a Kmart. But the, the question is whether satisfactory, the word satisfactory means he had no obligation at all, or he could just decide yes or no whenever he wanted. The California's court here is saying satisfactory is a meaning that required him to operate in good faith. There's an underlying assumption that when the parties make a contract, they intend for that contract to be binding. And so because there's this assumption that they intended to have a contract that would be binding, that there was some kind of a promise, they wouldn't intentionally make a contract that would be unenforceable. If the shoe was on the other foot, so to speak. And she said, hey, you're supposed to buy from me. And he said, sorry, no satisfactory leases. She mm -hmm. could then say, well, you found leases. They should have been satisfactory. So he was obligated to behave in good faith. And even though th this is a, he, mine has to do some kind of backflips here, right? He's the one that's suing to enforce the contract, but he has to argue that he had obligations in order to make that contract a good contract. So he has to argue against himself as to what his own obligations would have been in this hypothetical world in which he had breached the contract. Ooh. Okay, uh, are we following the flip, the back flip yeah. of the arguments? Mm. Yeah, okay, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got pretty esoteric. Let me, try and, let me try and back up. The word we're talking about here is the word satisfactory. Imagine for a moment, the lawsuit goes the other way. Imagine for a minute, 
that Amelia Hopper sues Peter Matei for $56,500 in exchange for selling her property. They made a deal for $57,500. He paid a $1,000 deposit. They get to the end of the 120 days and she says, pay up. And he says, sorry, I'm not obliged to perform. The reason I'm not obliged to perform this contract and I don't have to pay you $56,500 and I don't have to take your property is because I didn't find any satisfactory leases. Okay. Are you with me so far under this hypothetical version of of the case? All right. And in that circumstances, Hopper says, bullshit. Sears was going to rent the property. They should have been satisfactory to you. You could have made a deal with Sears and you blew them off because you have this weird issue with Sears regarding Lucy Lady Duff Gordon making, you know, lowering her her quality of merchandise back in the teens. And that is, for whatever reason, the reason you don't want to have a Sears there. And so that lease should have been satisfactory to you. You did not behave in good faith. You're obliged to buy my property for $56,500. His argument in this case is she would have won that other hypothetical case. I mean, that's like that's like primo tautology, right? Like, um, we're just going to assume that they would not make a contract that isn't a contract, so we're going to call it a contract, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Totally circular reasoning. Yeah. But there is this belief in the law that when people make a contract, they intend it to be an enforceable contract. I can get So where all of the things are equal... And we look at the document, we're going to assume they meant for it to be an enforceable contract. And so the court here is leaning the contract and the meaning of the word satisfactory toward making that an obligation. Because otherwise, if he could just decide willy nilly about whether a lease was satisfactory or not, then there would have been no contract. There would have been no agreement. There would have been no lawsuit and he would have lost. It's completely circular. And if you feel dizzy and a little nauseous, you're in the right place. I mean, welcome to the first year of law school. (laughs) I quit. Every time you say that, I'm so glad. (laughs) No. Uh, Yeah. Those are years I cannot get back. So. I, it's such a mystery, like knowing her motive for not wanting to sell the property is just so interesting because. Well, you want to know my guess on that? I'll give you my guess. Let me hear it. All right. Well, this is California in the fifties. So the chances are pretty good that in six months, the prices of property went up. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that and makes- so she went out and hired a lawyer to do this. She didn't, it was not a, like a pro bono case. My guess is that she realized after the fact she got a little, she got a little seller's remorse mm. and she could have sold it for more or didn't just didn't want to, she wanted to hold on to the property mm-hmm. and realized that I could have gotten a better deal if I waited. And there's a chance that the court is aware that that's some of the economics going on here. And some of the policy reasons you have uh, some of the, you want the contract to be enforceable is you want people to make contracts because the alternative to making contracts is rule of force and and brute force and whoever's the most powerful wins. So the idea is that if you want to have contracts be binding, then you want to assume that most contracts are going to be binding because we want an orderly society and we want people to make deals even when they don't like the deals later. 
Because for sure, some people are going to make deals they're not going to like later, and we're going to want them to perform them. Um, we don't want anarchy. So that's that's a little bit of why I think they're they're going to lean in favor of finding the contract enforceable. They're going to lean in favor of saying that the word satisfactory meant that he had to use what they call duty of good faith. In modern contract formulation, as we sit here today, there is in all contracts an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. The implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing is that neither side is allowed to do things that deprive the other party of all the benefits of the contract. So you can't make a contract and then make the contract have no value to the other side. You can make a bad deal. You can make a a deal that's disadvantaged. You can make a deal that you regret, but we're going to try and hold you to that deal. And if you try and take away the value the other side gets, then you could be in breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. Can I give you a very simplified version of this that I'm in entangled with right now? Please. About four years ago, I bought some shoes at Ross. I paid $16.99. I wore them once and they didn't give me enough arch support. So I put them up for sale on Poshmark for $20. They've been up there for three years, but just yesterday, someone offer on them for the full $20 that I'm offering for them when I paid $19.99. On top of that, they have to pay the shipping. That's like $5. They're totally getting ripped off. The shoes are three to four years old and I paid $17 and they're buying them for 20 plus shipping. That's a bad deal, but they entered into the contract. They accepted the terms, and if they get mad because they find out that those shoes are four years old and only worth $18, it's too bad. I am vaguely worried that I am the purchaser of those shoes, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Now, Pia, if people want to log in and rate you on Poshmark, where can they do that? So yeah, so just wrapping up this block of the podcast, the law infuses certain kinds of obligations into contracts and adds clauses or meanings to things that aren't written by the parties. And so in both of these cases, there's implied promises. There's an implied promise to be reasonable or to act in good faith or that you're somehow obliged to behave under the contract. And even though we may not like how the outcome came out when we look at the cases, we're expecting people to behave as a reasonable person. And so when we're looking at Matei versus Hopper, they're saying there's a duty of good faith that both parties had an obligation to be reasonable and that Matei had to use reasonable efforts to make this satisfaction clause meaningful, even if they didn't specifically put it in the contract. We're going to read that into it to make sure that the contract's enforceable. And this goes to a broader point about the policy of the law and about the reason we have contracts is that we want people to be able to, to the best of their ability, control expectations, plan for outcomes, have predictability, have some sense of control in this chaotic, crazy universe of ours. Speaking of chaotic and crazy, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we're going to come back and do a little improv. Here's the story of coronavirus. When the government was clearly unprepared, all of us had heard the dire warnings. And we all got 
You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. And we're back as promised. Limprov. Women and children first. Um, excuse me. I think I should go first because I um I don't know if you've noticed what I'm wearing, but um gotta save it. Wow, we look at this lady. What a hat and whatnot. Look at that parasol. I know, right? Hey, I've got a life jacket and I'm gonna survive. Out of my way, lady! I don't okay, care. Molly Brown and that highly fashionable styled woman. Uh, you first. First dibs on the first lifeboat. Um, if possible, could we brand this uh, lifeboat after me? Could it be the Lady Lucy Duff Gordon lifeboat? Maybe just just thinking about future branding opportunities here. Sure. And uh, and drink services will just be started shortly once everyone's in the water again. Great. Right. Like, what is she thinking? Excuse me, ladies, but I'm a tuba player over here in the corner. I've been playing my tuba loudly, hoping that maybe I could get on one of your boats. Uh, what do you say? I'm, I may be a gent. I may not get to go first, but I would love to join you in your little lifeboat. What do you say? Out of my way! Yeah. <laughs> what would be in it for us? Well, you could. I could play my tuba for you the entire rest of the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Listen. Hey, excuse me. Is this uh, band player, uh, marching band player, annoying you? Because um, you're supposed to uh, keep playing until the last boat has been filled, sir. Did That's you true. Read your contract. Yes, my, the name's George Parker. In case you don't remember, George Parker, the tuba player, and I am mindful of my. Oh, excuse me. This is my cue. You see, when you play the tuba, you only have so many cues. So you got plenty of time to talk in between takes, if you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying we're playing some Stravinsky, some some. Well, say it and don't spray it, Mr. Parker. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I've got to go now. Way, I'm unsinkable. Out of my way. Wait a minute, though. With that tuba, we attracted a lot of attention to this lifeboat. People were looking at us and therefore looking at my beautiful outfit and also at, um, and uh, everybody else, maybe we should have them just to draw attention to ourselves. Excuse me, I couldn't help hear this phenomenal tuba playing and these fashionable people getting on this boat. What can I do to be a part of this? Well, uh, um, you look lovely in that evening gown, darling, but I, I, I'm not sure I can help you. I haven't been able to talk my way onto the boat myself. <laughs> Looks like me and my tuba are going to be going down with the ship, if you know what I'm saying. The name's the name is George, in case you're wondering. George Parker, I think I might have a solution for you. I've got an extra pair of baby clothes you could put on that tuba, pretend it's a child. Oh, uh, you'll be first in line. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I, I will dress my tuba in some baby clothes, but I'm, I'm just wondering, and that doesn't seem to help me with my predicament. 
and it does help my tuba, which I do care for as one would a child. If only someone had some extra women's couture you could dress in, and then you would be the woman with your child tuba. Out of my way! <laughs> How about this? I'll give you some extra very fine, very beautiful women's clothing, but you are obliged to tell everybody with your tuba music that it's by me, Lady Duff Gordon. I don't know how you might do that, but if you don't do it to a satisfactory extent, no deal. And I drown you in the, in the ocean. Well, with a, deal, with a deal like that, I don't think I can turn down the terms. From this day forward, I shall be Georgette, wearer of Lady Duff Gordon, Lucy Lady Duff Gordon, all her finest couture, Georgette. I have a deep voice because I like to smoke. This is a story that's going to be in the pictures one day, I can imagine. <laughs> Maybe wait a minute. That baby made an unfortunate sound. Oh, gals, you know, I'm just another gal like you gals on this boat full of gals in my dress with my baby. With her I... baby and impeccable dress. Yes, it's a very lovely dress. It's made by Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon. You can see the name sequined here, right above my heart. I do love that uh, your name all over your outfit. I've never seen anything like that. To put a person's name on the outside of their clothing and to not even wear your own name. What a thought! Oh, I am a boss businesswoman. What are you trying to influence me? I am. And also, might I add, I am a black hole of a narcissist. <clears throat> Sounds just like my last four lovers. <laughs> Please. Who here boats that we jump this me your attention. In, in, the, in the ocean? Is it just me or is it getting hot in this boat? <laughs> <laughs> My God, what do you feed that child to make it make such a sound? Funny you should ask. If I knew the answer, I would tell you, but I unfortunately am not so good at improvisation. I, I just bring my baby around because I'm a lady named Georgette with a baby named Tuba. Tuba? This does not strike me as within keeping of with our agreement for you to be advertising my my wares with your every breath. Uh, so I'm just going to throw you overboard. Sorry. Oh, farewell, farewell. I also maybe my way. Nice job, lady. Now we can have a little more leg room. You know, yeah, you and your fancy clothes. Yeah. So tell me more. You've got parasols and whatnot. I've got whatnots, yes. Let me tell you something. I have no morals. I am a fallen woman of sorts. Uh, I Let me tell you, in, within my magical wares, there is some, probably some demonic, some sort of demonic pact in the lining. Oh my. But I'm very fashionable about it. I see. But then again, I am nervous about selling my wares in a place as big as New York City without a man to help me. Huh. Yes, well, 
I'm feeling influenced by you. Two, I've got to have more of your clothes layering. Let's layer up as many as possible because it's also quite cold. cold. It is quite cold. It is quite cold. I will give you some of my clothes. No problem. That seems fun. But you have to give me a deposit of sorts. Um, Name it. 60 shillings. Is that what we use? Shillings. Sure. <laughs> are we British? We are today. We put our tuppences in the bank. <laughs> oh my, look! Look! Ahoy! I see land! Wait. Oh, thank goodness. That means I'm not going to perform and I'm not going to give you any extra clothes, even though you gave me the shillings. Well, all my dreams have come true. But a, a boat full of ladies, I have always wanted to have a boat full of ladies show up at my harbor restaurant. Ladies, come on in, have yourself some oysters, have yourself some kebabs. Beast to your heart's content, you ladies look bedraggled. Kebabs here? <laughs> no worries, we need it. On this Virginia Beach? Yes, Virginia Beach, welcome to Virginia Beach. My name's Howard. Welcome to my restaurant. It's Howard's Roadside Muscle and Clam Shop. I don't know oh, if I can condescend and eat it, to eat at such a stand as this. I mean, I have a reputation to maintain. Listen, at Howard's Virginia Beach Muscle and Clam Shop, we serve the highest haute couture people coming up and down the coast all day long. I'm just delighted to have such a lovely boat full of ladies. In fact, uh, in fact, these are some fashionable clothes. I think I could sell some of them and maybe take a large commission. Who's the designer of these very fashionable clothes? I probably need a man to design. You couldn't tell with the dark them. energy emanating from my every pore that I'm the designer? Of course, it's me, <laughs> Lady Lucy, Lady Depp Gordon. Yep, that one. Well, I do desire for my own demise, which is probably why I find you absolutely under irresistible, I think, is a is a... I have always had a thing for the narcissists. And I've always had a thing for a Faustian bargain, so maybe we can do something. Absolutely. Well, why don't, why don't you use take advantage of the fact that I'm a man, and I don't know much except about clams and mussels and roadside cafes where I work. So and you can use my manness to sell your wares. You basically will be doing all the legwork in having... A certain type of genitalia, and I will be providing all the clothing, wares, goods, merchandise to be sold, and my name and my reputation. Well, this sounds perfect. That's what I've perfect. always dreamed of. That's my dream, too. Yes. Actually, I want to build a mall somewhere in California one day. We got to a mall. Wow, look at that, like, parasol and whatnot. Is the store selling whatnots? I've been, like, looking for whatnots that are this vintage for the past five years since my last birthday. Um, welcome to Doodads and Whatnots. Um, we do specialize in, in, in Doodads and Whatnots, both of them. Can I take your order? So... Yeah, I would like um like two doodads to start and then like whatnot, like what not is the whatnot of the whatnot day. 
Now, I'm not sure I'll be able to provide for you any whatnots or doodads at this moment because we unfortunately are at risk of losing our lease because we may or may not be satisfactory tenants. Wow. Two, you two shoppers over there across the mall. I've got doodads and whatnots if you just make me an offer. Oh, really? Oh, welcome to my store. We popping over. We can like make up a price for the whatnots. I don't have to pay what the whatnots cost. Well, it just sort of depends on what agreement we come to. You know what I'm saying? Well, do you take shillings? I could take shillings if the offer is good enough. You know what I'm saying? Wink, wink. What about trades? I have this like rusty tuba that I inherited. <laughs> Oh my god, you dress up your tuba in a bonnet? Yeah. This tuba's name is Tuba. It's a baby. What do I do? I keep losing business to this bad faith dealer over there who's just taking rusty tubas of no value just to upstage me and make me a less satisfactory tenant. This sounds like you've called for the thingamabob fairy. <laughs> I'm the thingamabob fairy, and I help and people's vague wishes come true. Mm-hmm. Wow. You're already making my wish come true because you're a gentleman and you're here to help me. Yes, how could I help you? I'm okay. a gentleman and also an, a heavy smoker. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, I'm a mall tenant. Uh, who sells doodads and thingabobs, and I'm being undersold by a, by, a, by a snake oil salesman across the mall. Well, do you want me to pulverize them for you? I can give you one to three wishes, depending on what type of wishes they are, whether they're satisfactory or unsatisfactory wishes. Well, I like to channel my, my, great, my ancestor, the Lady Death Gordon, and say, I think, yes, you should pulverize them, because I don't speak for people. Your wish is my command. Sing him a bob. Sing him a bob. Sing him a bob. Whoa, is this an earthquake or I'm being pulverized? <laughs> I feel like we're being pulverized. <laughs> I'm an honest business person. I may have overdone the thing, my bob. I pulverize the customers as well. Very sorry about that. Didn't come with a money back guarantee, but you know, that's how it goes with pulverizing sometimes. Hey, doodad fairy. How may I grant a wish of yours that is vague and also ambiguous? Doodad fairy? With my last breath? Will you just immortalize my name on the front of this property? I want everyone to remember that I was a tenant at the best mall in all of Pennsylvania. Your wish is my command. What is your name? My name is Oda. Henceforth, this mall shall be the Oda Mall. I will install a large sign. <sighs> this mall is now officially foreclosed on, and all tenants will be that, be closing. 
Well, I'm progressing. Change. You know, I'm over here. I'm. <clears throat> my name's my name's Tommy. I'm the the owner of Whatnots and Thingamabobs. I bought this from my aunt a few years back. Are you saying you're foreclosing on the mall here at the? That's Ola? right. Oh. Yep. This property is going to be something even more sweet and even more economically efficient than a me mega mall. Well, where will the teenagers go? Tell us. Right here, because it's going to become a raging waters with a lazy river. Well, doesn't that give people staff infections? Yeah, but it makes money hand over fist, which is what's important here. Isn't an outdoor water park in Pennsylvania kind of a rocky idea? You should see the returns during the summer. It more than justifies the off months. And everybody gets a built-in break in their schedule. Well, we do like jobs with breaks. Here, take a complimentary Duff Gordon Park uh, Raging Waters uh, parasol. Ooh, this is so fancy. Do you have many ones to put in the drinks? You know I do. And there's one thing this park is all about. It's branding. Well, that really is all it takes for success, is a good brand. All it really takes to be successful, from what I've learned, is to intend to be successful, and then you should just assume you are successful. You sound trained like a man. Thank you. Uh, excuse me. Uh, seems to be an awful lot of interesting activity going on over here. Uh, are you... You uh, handing out pamphlets of some sort? I'm interested. I'm handing out parasols, and you may have one, please. Oh, by all means. It's lovely. You are very influential. Well, I yes. was just passing by and noticed your wonderful demeanor and your beautiful property, and I feel influenced by you. Wonderful. Then it's all going according to plan. Of course. Mm -hmm. I am so influenced. Never thought I could feel this way. It's satisfying. Thank you, ma'am, for your influence. You're welcome. It, I honestly, it is, it is one of the noblest things I do to shine my personal magnetism and incredible like cachet, charisma, scintillating, uh, curious interest and desire to all people all oh, over the world. You have a gift. Yeah. Use when I spread the word via water park. Mm, uh -huh. So glad I was walking by. Wow. Is this like, I love this water park because of all of the rusty tubas in the lazy river. It's like an auditory rust experience. Have you ridden the Titanic ride yet? Um, I heard you need scuba lessons for that, but, um, I'm taking it uh, today. Yeah. I can't wait to learn how to drown. Well, if I'm going back to history, I want to be a man and that's what happened to them. All I can say is that I'm so influenced by the brain of this park that I don't even notice anything about anything. I just want to be here because of the advertising. I just feel like this is the place for me. Um, this water park, this uh, Lady Duff Gordon Titanic water park, and then all the exciting. It, it, it's just like the commercial. It's just like every time you talk, it's like, look, 
look at this. It's like being in the commercial right it's here. It's like a commercial. I, you know, the one thing is that I notice is different is there's a lot more what looks to be corpses everywhere. There is so know. much blood in the water. <laughs> but it's well bred. It's well, you know, branded. <laughs> Out of my way. I've got to get down this slide and get into the blood in the water. It's Molly Brown the third, forensic scientist. Oh, okay. Oh. Is it infected? I, she didn't Molly. come back up. Oh, oh. I'm drop, drop, I'm drop. Oh, oh, oh. I'm drowning. I I can't help but think she would have made she would have survived that if she'd been a man. And that's another day at the water park. Come on down and enjoy blood in the water, drowning, rusty tuba, the Titanic reenactment, and scuba lessons that are so realistic, you'll be dying to come here. The Pennsylvania, California adjacent water park that used to be a shopping mall. Come one, come all. Your brain will be branded and washed clean with the water of our water park. Brought to you by Lady Duff Gordon Incorporated. <laughs> OG influencer. Yeah, I think that's what we what we learned uh, in this story yeah. is it doesn't matter what you do as long as you brand it properly. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that part of the end was like, okay, I buy it now. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you intended to be successful. It is a success. Yeah, that was that was like the that was like the uh, <laughs> the mentalist version of it. Like just manifesting. It's like a Abraham Hicks, just like manifesting yeah, yeah. the brand you wanted to be. All right. Well, I want to thank all four of you for being on the podcast today. Before we go, um, can each of you just take a minute and let our audience know where they can find you on the internet, social media, or elsewhere? Okay, I'll go. Uh, find me quick on uh, Poshmark. My Poshmark handle is Pia Minsky style. And you can also find me on, uh, on the Instagram as Pia Minsky style. I'm putting up some new stuff on the site today. So get real excited about some freshly purchased sneakers. What size? Nine and 10. Uh-oh. Oh. I'm Lauren and I am not on Poshmark. I was, I was pretending. <laughs> I wanted to be Kind of sounds so cool. You can find me doing stand up on the streets of LA and also uh, hosting an open mic every Tuesday at six o'clock at the third wheel Hollywood called Ego Death. And you can follow on Instagram, Ego Death Mike M I C. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren. Lisa. Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. Not a performer. Please don't ever try to find me on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be on the internet now. <laughs> You'll find me out and about in the real world. Um, but no, by trade, I am a makeup artist based in the Midwest. You can find me on Instagram. It's at L-I-V-I-M-I. -I. Let's talk about lipstick. Well, thank you, Lisa. Kristen. And you can find me on Facebook, even though I don't know if I'm directly searchable, but I think you could find me somehow. But I don't have Instagram or TikTok because I refuse 
to acknowledge that they exist because that is terrifying to me. You mostly, honestly, the best place to really find me is immediately next to North America's largest urban bat colony on the near the Congress Avenue Bridge here at Austin. So if you're in Austin, <laughs> look her up. Yep. Well, I'm Billy DeClerc and that's our show.